Uh, for those of you guys just coming in, my name is Jordan. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance. A few years ago, something happened to me on the train, uh, to me and my wife, that has actually changed my life forever. My wife was pregnant with our son, Jameson, and we were just coming back from a doctor's appointment that had actually gone really well. It was a pretty normal day, and we were coming back from Columbus Circle, back uptown on an express train. Now, it was rush hour, so the train was pretty packed. Um, and as I looked over at my wife, she was sweating. Now, for me, this would not have been a big deal. I sweat like I'm doing CrossFit just standing here on stage. <laughs> this is why I got the preacher rag to keep my forehead from getting Jermaine Jackson greasy. Uh, but for her, she smells better than I do. She barely sweats, even when they're like working out. Uh, so to look over and see her struggling and sweating pretty bad, that was actually a pretty big sign that something was off. So at first I asked, was she okay? And she says, yeah, it's only about a five-minute ride from Columbus Circle to 125th Street. Uh, so at first, we were going to tough it out. About a minute into it, uh, I was like, she is riding shotgun on the struggle bus. She is not going to make it uh, to 125th Street. And a man got up and gave us um, his seat so that she could sit down. As soon as we got off of the train uh, onto the platform at 125th Street, uh, she passed out. And she was on, a, on the subway platform, and a crowd formed around us. I was terrified. A, a woman offered us her half-drunk water, and I was like, no, thank you. Jessica was like, <laughs> snatch that joint and guzzled this lady's spit water, basically. <laughs> uh, she felt much better about five minutes later, and we walked home. And we got home, and she was feeling pretty much back to normal. Now, fortunately for us, during the second trimester of pregnancies, uh, it's a pretty normal thing to, for a woman to faint. We didn't know that, but uh, a lot of women experience a lot of fainting and dizziness and all of this. The baby's just getting so much bigger and it's taking all the blood, so we weren't worried about anything long-term with Jessica or with the baby. But even though that experience was small, it's something that has stuck with me forever. Uh, I've never ridden the subway the same way. Now, when I'm on the subway, I think about the woman that may be struggling, maybe a disabled person that might be struggling, and they would need my seat. So I'll never get so lost in Kendrick Lamar's new album that I won't pick up my, new, my head and see who's around and see who might need my seat. It's a pretty interesting thing that because I had received help when I needed it, when Jessica had received help when she needed it, we're actually much more willing to give need to those who might be uh, to give help to those who might be in need. And that's something that's not just in me. I've seen that in uh, my life and so many other people's lives, that when you're on the receiving end of something good, uh, especially when you really need it, you're much more likely to actually give help to those who might be in need. Uh, my dad grew up extremely poor in, in Buffalo, uh, in tenement living in the 50s and, and 60s in Buffalo. And he told some stories that are some of the most heartbreaking ones about being a kid that's growing up uh, just a poor kid in the 50s and 60s. And he said that when he was in school, uh, he only had two pairs of shirts, and uh, two shirts, pairs of shirts would be whatever, okay. <laughs> two pairs of jeans and uh, two shirts. And uh, his sneakers or shoes that he wore were always pretty ugly and the cheapest ones of, uh, possible. And he got made fun of a lot just because he couldn't afford nice shoes. When my brother and I were growing up, uh, my father may be overcompensating, but hey, I'll take it. Uh, he always made sure that we had the best sneakers, and we always had new sneakers. And not just us, and that's my brother after service, not just us, he would buy the whole hood sneakers. 
And what made him so reckless with his money, much to the chagrin of my mother, I'm, I'm sure, was that he knew what it felt like to have to rely on people. He knew what it felt like to be teased because he couldn't afford it. Uh, and it wasn't so much that he was determined to do a good thing than it was that he saw himself inside of those kids. And for him to do an act of love was just a natural extension of what he had received in life. Now, that got me to thinking a, a lot about how you and I behave. And in some ways, you and I learn and we grow based on stuff that we've heard, sermons that we've heard, lectures that we've heard, books that we've read, and that's one real way that forms us. Uh, but there's another avenue, there's another big part that forms us, and it's our experiences. And I was thinking, what, is, uh, what are our experiences uh, with God? What is the experience that you and I have with Jesus? And I'm not talking about what you would say in terms of a pop quiz, what's the good answer to give, but what is our actual experience um, with God? And if our capacity to do good things increases when good things happen to us, uh, what's our understanding of Christianity? Uh, do we take it as something that is a good thing that has been done to us that would kind of free us and nudge us in the direction to do good things for other people? Better yet, if you and I were to really encounter Jesus and to walk alongside Jesus, what experiences would you have or what experiences should you have? What should be your reaction to those in need after having encountered Jesus? Now, we're doing this series called Encounters with Jesus to answer these questions. Um, and I think the answer is that Jesus would want us to experience something deep uh, within ourselves, that when in him our needs are met, and as a result that our needs are met, uh, it wouldn't be burdensome, it wouldn't be an obligation, it wouldn't be a task, but that you and I could meet the needs of other people. Now, we're looking at a really great encounter in Scripture. Um, if you've grown up going to church, if you've been to vacation Bible school once or twice, then you have no doubt heard this story. If you're brand new to church, uh, you may have even heard of the story. Uh, but I think the meaning is so powerful and so fresh, I'm going to go through it again. Uh, it's called the Good Samaritan, and there's hospitals named after this story. Uh, this is a pretty popular one in Scripture. It starts out with Jesus talking to an expert, a religious um, lawyer, and it starts off in 25, of, verse 25 of Luke 10. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, real quick, uh, this guy was not a, if, if the glove don't fit, you must acquit type of lawyer. He was a, a, a Jewish scholar. And if anybody knew what the answer of this question should have been, it's this dude. Like, all he did all day was debate Jewish customs and debate Jewish laws and read the Torah and listen to lectures and people give the answer. So this question, what do you have to do to inherit eternal life? Like, dude, you should actually know this answer. And Jesus responds to his question with a question. Uh, verse 26, what is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? Now, the Jewish uh, religious expert replies to Jesus with the greatest two commands. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart your soul, your strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the first command gets at this. If God created us, um, then God gave us our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. Then to love God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind would really be just giving God what's his in the first place. Now, really quick pop quiz. Uh, can any of us say, uh, even if maybe just for an hour, that you have done that really well? Like, oh, I've definitely loved the Lord God with all my heart, all my strength, all my soul, and all my mind. 
I think that if there's a hint of honesty, we would know. There's no way uh, I would, I love God that much. Maybe when I'm on a train and my song comes on and they really take it to the bridge, um, maybe for like those two minutes, I'm really feeling it. But as soon as I, as soon as I take my headphones out, uh, I'm back to reality. Now, the second command that's in Scripture is equally as difficult. It says to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you love your neighbor as yourself, then that means that in as much force and as much intensity and as much effort as you would meet your own needs, you would meet the needs of your neighbor, that you would care as much about them eating as you would about your brunch plans, or that you would care as much about their safety as you would about your safety. Now, the religious expert is probably feeling a little uncomfortable right now, and he's like, all right, Jesus, uh, he's looking for an out, because he's like, surely you don't mean that I got to love some dude named Craig the same way I love myself. No offense to any Craigs in the room. Surely you don't want me to love some random person in the way that I love myself? Uh, and Jesus, uh, he asked Jesus, okay, then fine. Who then is my neighbor? You clear it up for me because I know you're not talking about every single person on the planet. That would be a literal impossibility. Now, here's what I think Jesus was hoping that this man would have responded to these questions with. Uh, I think Jesus was hoping that this man would have heard the two commands to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself, and he would have gotten some good old-fashioned humility. And he would have thought to himself, man, I'm just not doing that at all. And his reply to Jesus would have been, Jesus, yo, I need some help. I I need forgiveness because I'm not doing any of these things. Jesus, what's going to make up the gap between what I do and what's required of me? Because there's no way on the planet that I meet that goal. Now, instead of humility and instead of him coming to Jesus uh, for help, uh, this man is actually trying to justify himself. And it says in um, verse uh, 29, it says, he wanted to justify himself. So he said, who is my neighbor? Now, in order for him, for Jesus to respond to him, Jesus doesn't give this dude a formula on how to mathematically compute who's your neighbor. Like, right, if they're from this city and if you... Uh, like them, and they like your Instagram pictures, so you have some familiarity with them. Um, if, you know, he didn't give them a formula for how they can determine who's their neighbor. Instead, Jesus tells them a story. Here's why I think Jesus told them a story, uh, because when you and I hear stories, it's a really natural human thing that you and I see ourselves as one of the characters in the story. And this is why, uh, when you're watching a show, this is why you got the whole box of tissues out for This Is Us, right? Because you have placed yourself in the story, And whatever is happening on the screen, you're starting to feel that personally uh, to yourself. You're starting to feel the emotions as if you yourself are experiencing what that person is experiencing. And this is why a good movie, a good show can move us to, to tears, to laughter, and everything in between. Now, here's what Jesus was wanting him to, to have. It's an experience. And so Jesus tells him the story of the Good Samaritan starts off like this in verse 30. It says, in reply, Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, just for a little bit of context, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho was notorious 
for thieves and robbers uh, to lurk in the shadows and to pounce uh, on people and to rob them. This is the way they um, made their living, robbing people. And this road would have been pretty uh, notorious that everybody should have known about it. This uh, person hearing the story, first part of the story makes a little bit of sense. Uh, a priest um, is, in this guy's mind, supposed to be somebody who's really close to God, right? They wear the religious garb. They, have, um, they don't shave the sideburns. They, got, you know, they put a curl and eye into their sideburns. They do all of these different things. And the Levite has a long history, lineage of being close to God. So you have these two people who are supposed to be really, really close to God. And when they see this man in need of help, uh, they didn't go help him. As a matter of fact, they actually crossed the street to, to go down the other side. It was too risky. It was too inconvenient. Uh, it would require too much from them if they were to go out of their way and help him. So Jesus continues the story. Uh, verse 33, uh, it says, But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, for this past week, I've been thinking about what is a good way to equate Jews and Samaritans? What is the relationship that they would have that would be something that it's, it's accessible for me and you to understand what their relationship was really like? And the best way I know how to explain it is imagine this current day political spectrum. Imagine taking somebody on the far left and somebody on the far right and putting them in a room together. Good things are not going to happen, right? Uh, they likely are enemies. They hate each other. They think the other person is stupid. Now, when Jesus puts a Samaritan and a Jew, this is basically what he is saying, is you have two very opposing people in the story. So Jesus tells the story, and he says um, that it wasn't the priest, and it certainly wasn't the Levite that helped this man out, but it was the Samaritan. It says, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'm going to reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Jesus asked him the question, now, which one of these three do you think um, uh, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in law replied, the one who had mercy on him. The one who had mercy on him, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, here's what I think Jesus was hoping this man would experience in the story. Now, whenever you see a story in Scripture, the biggest question we first want to ask is, what did this story sound like to the person in the original audience? Right? The secondary question is how it applies to me and you. But the primary question is, how did this dude take the story that Jesus was telling him? And here's how he would have taken it. The key to the story is the placement of where the religious experts were in the story. Now, this religious expert would have never identified himself with the Samaritan. For Jesus to lob that example out, that a Samaritan was coming out, immediately, as he was hearing the story, he wasn't seeing himself as a hero in the story. He was seeing himself as the one who needed help. And now Jesus is asking him this question. Listen, it's not the, the story is not that, hey, once upon a time... There was a Samaritan that was on a road, and the priest came along and decided to help him. And you know what? You should be like the priest. You should go and do likewise. Jesus did not say that. That was absolutely not his intention in telling the story. This is what Jesus was telling him. He was saying, imagine if you were the one that was leaking out on the street and you were bleeding. 
Imagine if it was you and you had no other choice, no other way to get uh, up on your own. Thieves had beat you down into the ground and they had left you half for dead. You could not walk the, the miles and miles of a journey to get help. You were going to bleed out. Wouldn't you want someone to show you grace? Wouldn't you want someone to stop? Now, he says, not just was it someone, but it was someone who owed him absolutely nothing. It was someone who probably should have disregarded him completely, this Samaritan. It was someone who didn't owe him anything, but yet he gave him, he risked his own life for this man that was laying on the road. Now, imagine that man's reaction the next day when he wakes up uh, at the innkeeper, and he asks the innkeeper, hey, how did I get here? Who, who bandaged me up? Who poured their expensive oil and wine on me? How am I, like, how did I get here? Because I know I didn't do this by myself. And the innkeeper says, hey, the one who owes you absolutely nothing risked his life for you and gave you everything. And then Jesus tells us in this, you go and do likewise. Jesus is not saying you need to be a good Samaritan. He's saying you and I have been good Samaritan. That's bad grammar, but good theology. He's saying that you and I, you and I are the ones that were laying down, and we were the ones that were bleeding. We were the ones that were left half for dead. Not that you and I are the hero of the story, and if you really want to be a nice guy, if you really want to be a nice lady, what you should really do is be like the Good Samaritan and do this. No, no, no. Jesus is saying, I want you to physically experience this emotion that one day you had absolutely no choice, and someone who owed you nothing gave you everything. Now, this is one of the clearest pictures of what we call the gospel, where undeserving people get unconditional love from an unobligated giver. In the story, we see um, uh, an unexpected savior who, at the risk of his own life, goes out of his way to help someone who deserved the opposite but got grace. An unexpected savior who, at the risk of his own life, goes out of his way to help someone who... Um, that didn't deserve anything, deserved the opposite, but they gave him grace instead. Now, here's what Jesus is painting the picture at. Jesus himself is our unlikely hero. He is the unlikely hero that, uh, as John 1 and 1 said, uh, John 1 and 14 says, he uh, came to his own and his own received him not. They rejected him. I was reading Isaiah 53, and this scripture gets to me every single time to see Jesus, our unlikely hero, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Now, Jesus is our unlikely hero. And not only that, but not only at the risk of his own life, but at the cost of his own life, he goes out of his way. Moving on in Isaiah 53, it says, Surely he took up our pain. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And this is the part that gets me every single time to help someone that deserved the opposite, but he gives us grace. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way. And here's the good news of the gospel. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
Now, what Jesus is saying is this. You and I will never love radically until we have known that we are loved radically. We will never be a good neighbor until we would know deeply that we have been neighbored by Jesus. And everything has to start with Jesus and what he has done. We are not just simply telling people, hey, you have to go out. If we start with a whole bunch of things to do and to not to do, man, that is going to last you as, as far as your Instagram likes will take you. Once it gets inconvenient, once it gets too costly, costly once it gets too risky, you won't do it. But what if when there was an opportunity to help someone, you didn't see it as a, as a project for you to work on, but you saw yourself in them? See, what would cause my pops to go deep into his bank account and, and buy sneakers for kids that he barely knew, kids that barely um, had never even come to our house like that. What caused my dad to do that wasn't because he, was just had, he had unlimited amounts of money, wasn't because he was just such a great dude as when he would see those kids with those dusty kicks on, he saw himself. And the call of the gospel, the call of the gospel is that when you see the hurt, when you see the broken, when you see the disenfranchised, you see yourself. When you see a woman that's caught in sex trafficking, you think to yourself, once upon a time, before the Lord came into my life, I was caught in sin. And I had no power on my own to get out. And, I was, I was, and Jesus came and paid his life as a ransom for me. For the kids who are in, uh, in the, the, the grasp and the gaze of young eyes, the, the ones that we want to uh, pour our hearts and our, and our minds out to see them come to know Jesus Christ, to see them mentored. Uh, listen, you're never going to look at those kids in any way that's positive until you see yourself in the light of the gospel that I was lost. I had no way to make it on my own, and someone came and found me. So in turn, I could meet the needs of those who are lost and looking, uh, looking for their way. Now, one of the things about verse 31 and 32, when you see uh, what the priest and the Levite did, is really a picture of what religion functions as in our life. Religion is all about looking good. Religion is all about you and what you got to do. But a relationship with Jesus uh, blows that up and turns that completely upside down. And it doesn't ask the question, what do I have to do? It asks the question, what has been done for me? That's the question that we start with, and that's the question that liberates us to, to live a life that's worth living. That's the question that motivates us and, and, and leads us in the direction uh, to not just do single events, but to pour our lives out in the service of others. One of the greatest documentaries I've seen recently on Netflix uh, has been White Helmets. Anybody seen that? It won an award. Um, it's these men and women who are in Syria, and when the bombs are going off, they're running into the buildings. And I was watching an interview with a woman named Nofa Hassan, and she was talking about the story of her rescue. And she was sitting in a building, having lunch or dinner with her family, and then out of nowhere, a bomb goes off right next door, completely blows shrapnel all over the place. Next thing she knows, she's buried under, uh, you know, just hundreds and hundreds of pounds of debris. For hours, she's stuck there. She's bleeding, and she's actually worried that she's going to bleed out uh, because for hours, she's there, and she starts to hear some voices. She starts to hear that somebody might be coming to rescue her. And then all of a sudden, somebody removes a big boulder, something she could have never done on her own, and they pull her up from the rubble. Now, if there is one person on this planet 
If there is one person on this planet who should feel some sort of empathy, who should feel some sort of grace, who should be willing to meet another, the needs of someone else, it would be the one who has been rescued by the white helmets. It would be the one who has felt it and seen that rescue firsthand. Listen, the church is at its absolute best, its absolute best when we're living in the light of the gospel. Uh, when you look at the early church, uh, you don't see a group of men and women uh, that were so concerned with worship services, so concerned with the graphics, so concerned with their social media accounts. They were men and women who loved people like crazy. And that caused Christianity to spread like wildfire. It wasn't their, stra- it wasn't their social media. It wasn't their, their marketing strategies. It wasn't any of that. It's that they had found something in Jesus so compelling. They had found something in Jesus so radical that when everybody else uh, was worried about themselves, they were worried about the needs of other people. There was a plague in 251 A.D., uh, and it reminded people of uh, this other plague that had happened 100 years ago in Rome where one-third of the population died in, in one terrible plague. Uh, certainly, they didn't have the sanitary systems that we have now, and everything uh, could literally wipe out hundreds of thousands of people in one fell swoop. And everybody who had money moved out of town. Everybody who had any ability to leave left except for the Christians. They were the only ones when everybody was moving out, they were moving in. You want to know why? You want to know why they did that? Because they knew that surely Jesus took up our pain and, our suf- and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our, um, our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace uh, uh, was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. They knew that they had received healing from Jesus, and they were people that didn't see these people in the villages as a project to be worked on. They didn't see them as people that were a good cause to to help out. They saw themselves, and because they saw themselves in them, they were willing to be risky, so much so that a lot of people who went into the plague, they died. The caretakers themselves didn't make it out. They were willing to be inconvenienced. And they were willing to pay the cost because uh, the capacity to which you and I have been loved increases our ability to love others. And this story is an amazing account of that. Um, Their Christian's love was so known uh, that in the fourth century, the Roman Empire, Julian, was complaining to one of his priests that, man, everybody's leaving our temples and they're going to the Christians. We should just copy what they're doing. And this is the letter he writes, He says, it is the Christians' benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, that have done the most to increase Christianity. I believe that we ought to really and truly practice every one of these virtues, for it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg, and the impious Galileans, he's talking about Christians, uh, not only support their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. Now, This is what they experienced, the radical, uh, ridiculous, free grace of the gospel. And when they had the opportunity to love someone else, they did. When it was a choice of self-preservation or radical love, they chose radical love. And they went against self-preservation because they were being fueled by the gospel to do something that this world has never seen before. Now, fortunately for us, uh, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 13 and 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what Jesus could do for normal, regular people back then, he can do to us. He can give us um, uh, the ex- an experience with the gospel. He can give us real, tangible 
um, practical benefits to our heart that would change us really from the inside out. And here's what I do a lot. Uh, I'll get up on a Sunday morning, even before I'm supposed to preach, and I'll say, God, I, I, you know, I'm just not really feeling the gospel. I know it's true. I'm, I'm trying to confess it. I'm trying to get myself there, but it's not really hitting me in my heart. It feels like, you know, on the road from my head to my heart, it got trapped up in my Adam's apple somewhere. And I just pray and say, God, I, I can't do this on my own. And if that's where you're at today, man, that is an amazing prayer that God hears and God answers. God does not turn his children away when they ask him for help. Now, Jesus gives us an amazing promise. He gives us an amazing promise in Matthew 16, 18 through 19 uh, about us. He says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, to be perfectly honest, I don't even know what all that means in terms of bound on earth, loose on earth, bound in heaven, loose in heaven. But here's what I think Jesus is getting at right here. I think Jesus is saying that what you and I do here has an eternal impact. I think he's saying that what you do here isn't meaningless. It's not just confined to the week that we're living in, the day that we're living in, the life that we're living in. He's saying that what we do here has an eternal impact. And what if we were people fueled by the gospel? What would that look like in our neighborhood? What would that look like in your personal life? I think it would look a lot like uh, inconvenience ourselves when, you know, we would prefer to do one thing and we could uh, see ourselves in someone who need need who needs something and we would uh, pour out that need to pour it ourselves to meet that need. Now, we've talked a little bit about Hope for New York and, and what we want to do. Now, there are upcoming opportunities for you and I to work with organizations like Safe Families. And Safe Families is an organization that comes around uh, families in foster care all with the goal of reunifying a family, but in the process, these families need some help. And here's what I hope that you believe, and here's what I hope that motivates you, that you see that once upon a time, you were broken and you were in need, and you couldn't fix it on your own. Your family was broken, and God, even though you didn't deserve it, welcomed you into his family, a family that is whole and a family that is good. And that would motivate you to pour yourself out to another family. We're going to have opportunities to work in a plethora of organizations. Uh, one that Jessica's going to talk about a little bit in the benediction about um, young lives and teen moms. And for people to be living in this uh, interesting position where they're pouring their lives out for their kids and they're still kids themselves. And it's a lonely road. And only if you believe that you were lonely before Jesus welcomed you in, will you really pour yourself out and do something meaningful. But here's something else I'm really, really excited about. Uh, the work that we're going to do here at PS76 with our kids and our families here uh, to invest meaningfully and, and deeply in that. And to talk a little bit about that, I actually want to welcome up Principal DeBerry, who is going to share a little bit with us. Now, Principal DeBerry is going to sing the first stanza of Amazing Grace. No? That's not going to happen. Okay. You don't want that to happen. <laughs> hey, so Principal DeBerry, tell us, uh, how long have you been here at uh, PS76? Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, I've been truly blessed to uh, have been the leader of PS76 for 15 years. Wow. wow. Give it up for that. 
Now, I know you don't think I look that old. Yeah, he doesn't. It's, it's shocking. You could barely a day over 32. Um, since you know this school and this neighborhood better, certainly the school way better than any of us do, tell us what makes PS76 a special place. Well, I think at PS76, we have a, uh, we, we, first of all, it is a family school. I, I, we think of ourselves, I think of myself as a leader of a community of educators and students who are uh, concerned about each other and about creating futures for our children uh, where they will be able to be successful uh, in the world to come. Uh, I think we have a lot of special activities. Uh, we have foot, youth football program. We have lacrosse teams. Uh, we have uh, technology interactive whiteboards in every classroom. We have computers in every classroom. And uh, I think the collaborations that we have with uh, organizations such as Renaissance, who has been extremely helpful, uh, they had volunteers in our building a couple of weeks ago. We'll be uh, actually opening a new computer lab with some of the work that uh, we were able to do with uh, the organization. And it's, it's just, uh, we have a lot of love. And uh, we serve a very diverse community, uh, families who are with children who are in foster care and uh, families who come from uh, shelters. And so we have a lot of the children uh, and families in our community who are disadvantaged and uh, the opportunity that we're trying to provide for them uh, can't be done uh, in isolation but done in partnerships with wonderful organizations like Renaissance and Harlem Children's Zone and Harlem Commonwealth, and those organizations that are giving their time to help us be a better community. Now, I'm sure every school has its challenges. Um, what would you say are some of the challenge, biggest challenges that uh, you face as a principal and that the school faces as a community? Well, uh, I think that uh, I think the biggest challenge, for, for as far as I see it, is that just trying to get more parents and people in the community involved with uh, what we're trying to do for our children. Uh, we would like to add uh, in our kindergarten classes uh, more technology. We do have the interactive board. We have some uh, iPads and some uh, computers. But uh, I recently attended an, uh, a technology conference in Florida and just exploring some of the new educational technologies that are out there. And I came across a system uh, called WonderWorks. Uh, and there's two robots, uh, Dat, Dash, and Dot, that uh, teach children in kindergarten how to actually code. They, can, uh, they, have, they make the uh, computers uh, robots talk, uh, they move them around, and they're learning principles of coding so that they are prepared to, uh, for the future ahead. So it's all about coding, engineering principles, and helping our students uh, be all that they can. Wow. They had that TV show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? And I would never do well on that. And I don't think I would do well on a kindergarten level of coding either. So uh, my age efficiency keeps on going down. Um, Principal DeBerry, what are some ways that our church and this community could be helpful to PS76? Well, I think you're doing some wonderful things now. As I said, uh, you had a group of volunteers that came up uh, to set up this uh, computer lab. You know, in an elementary school, we're K-8. There are not a lot of men. I have a few men teachers, so, you know, just having some people come in, help move things around, uh, clean out closets, uh, that was very helpful. Uh, we have a fun day coming up. Our fun day is a day where we block off the streets and we have uh, the bouncy houses and lots of other activities uh, uh, all the way down 121st Street to the playground. 
Uh, we do barbecuing. Last year, uh, uh, Hema and a, a group of Renaissance people came out and, did, you know, for the first time, I didn't have to do all the cooking. That was, that was real nice. Uh, they, they, they served popcorn, cotton candy. Uh, it was a wonderful day of, of service for uh, people in the community, and it was a great day for our children. Uh, we have a career day coming up. I think that's May 16th. Uh, there's some sign-up uh, sheets outside. We're looking to bring uh, your careers to our uh, children so that they could be inspired and know uh, the types of uh, things that are out there for them. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, uh, you're doing a lot for, to help us now, uh, certainly helping us to purchase the dot and dash robots for our kindergarten would go a long ways in helping us meet our vision and our mission. Yes. Um, so. One of the big things that we're really excited about, and I could talk really forcefully about it because this money is not coming to us, uh, April 23rd, the week after Easter, we're, we're having an offering where we're hoping to raise $25,000. And part of that $25,000 is going to go to buy PS76, the robot, so our kids here can start to learn these things now and as four- and five-year-olds and thinking about what that can do uh, to set them up for success in the future. Uh, I get in trouble a lot with my wife because I just say uh, a lot of things that we're going to do before I talk to anybody else uh, about doing it. So I'm going to ask you guys, do you think we can do it? Yeah. All right, good. So I got your, your buy-in. And also, definitely, uh, a lot of times career days are doctors and lawyers, and I'm a lawyer, so no shade to lawyers. Uh, but a lot of you guys have amazingly cool careers, and how amazing would it be to, to hear from your voices uh, the type of work that you do and inspire the children. And whether it's for the fun day on June 23rd or for career day on uh, May 16th, we would love for you to sign up in the lobby. And this is the start, the start, the start, the start of a long-term relationship with PS76, with the organizations we're working with with Hope for New York. This is not uh, a sprint. This is a marathon that we're hoping uh, to run alongside them, uh, loving our neighborhood well. All right, I'm going to pray for Principal DeBerry, and then we're going to turn it over to the band. Uh, Heavenly Father, God, I'm grateful for this man and his leadership. I'm grateful for what he represents to our kids here. God, I pray for the families at this school. God, I, that you would inspire them to get more involved, and I pray for more families to get involved uh, in PS76. God, I pray for the kids who are struggling. I pray for the kids who are doing well. I pray for the teachers uh, that they would find hope and that we would come alongside them meaningfully, God, that you would inspire us to, to walk alongside this school and these organizations in meaningful ways. Would you lead Principal DeBerry in clear ways? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.